Well, church, please open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8 as we continue our consideration of Paul's letter to the Christians in first century Rome. I hope you're doing well underneath all of this snow. It is wild (laughs) out there. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders uh, at Church in the Square, and we're continuing on to consider this great letter, as I just mentioned, Romans chapter 8, verse 24 and 25 will be our primary text today, Romans 8, verse 24 and 25. And Paul today is going to round out a portion, a particular portion of his teaching in Romans chapter 8 in these two verses. If you remember, this chapter began with two ways of living. There was this life according to uh, the flesh and life according to the Spirit in verses 1 through 11. And then in 11 and 12, there was a shift, a transition that took place, and we began to think about and were taught that our sufferings in this age are not worth comparing to the glory that we will experience or that will be revealed to us in the age to come. From there, then, we also learned that all of creation will be redeemed and freed from bondage, which includes your physical body and my physical body, when Jesus returns and he sets all things to rights. And that took us all the way up to verse 23. We learned that heaven and earth will be united as one. And so here's what we've learned thus far. If we can put it as simply as possible, Romans chapter 8, 1 through 23. Today we suffer. Tomorrow there's glory. Today we suffer. Tomorrow there's glory. So for now, what do we do? We wait. We wait. That's what I'd like to talk about today. I believe that's what we need to talk about today. That middle between the suffering and the glory. In our passage today, I think Paul answers a very simple yet helpful question. What do we do now? What ought our attitudes be like as we wait for glory? Here's Romans chapter 8, verse 24 through 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So church, what do we do? What do we do in this in-between? We hope and we wait because we have glory ahead of us in Christ. Therefore, we have hope, but, but we can't see it. So it's a bit frustrating, right? And that's what makes hope, hope is what Paul is saying, in this way that might seem a little bit confusing, but because it's invisible, it's unseen, it's not yet. So for now, in the suffering, waiting for glory, that's exactly what we do. We wait. But notice, Paul says we wait for it with patience. We wait for it with patience. Did you hear that? Patience. The word for patience is more active than we might suppose At first, the English rendering, I think, is a little bit shallow when it comes to this word. When we wait with hope, we don't just sit still and quiet. We anticipate. We long. We experience sadness and lethargy and complacency and all a myriad of different emotions in the middle of our waiting. And yet, we keep hoping. We keep going. We keep trusting. See, what Paul is calling us in between and in the moments between suffering and glory is not this passive acceptance, but an eager endurance. That's what I'd like to talk about today. Endurance. 
It's what the late theologian and pastor Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. To help us to consider what I believe is a really neglected spiritual habit of endurance, let's consider three things. The call to endure, the strength to endure, and the promise of endurance. The call to endure, the strength to endure, and the promise of endurance. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we're coming to your word yet again, as we do every time, and we need help. I pray for my sisters and my brothers that each of us, Father, would embrace the only prerequisite to receiving care and love and blessing from you is to admit our need for it. We are a needy people. And you are a generous God. And so we thank you that in the middle of our need and our lack and a trying and wearisome season, you are a God who is with us. You are a God who fills us. You are a God who keeps your word, who fulfills your promises. And so today, would you through your word reveal your promises to us and demonstrate how you are faithful to your word? And would that do something to our souls would it not just be something that sounds good, but it would, would it actually be good for us? That it would knit back together places where there are deep wounds in our hearts. That it would bring comfort where we are feeling the weight of affliction. But it would, would it also, for those of us who are feeling comfortable and perhaps even lethargic in our faith, would you enliven us, convict us, and demonstrate the great love of your righteousness that you have afforded us through Christ? Help me, Father. I desire to be clear and responsible with your word. Think with my mind. Speak with my mouth. Use even my whole body for your glory today, God, so that we would become together, myself, my sisters, my brothers, the church, the people of God. You're calling us to be right now in this city, at this place, at this time, right here and right now. We pray all of this, that your will would be done right here in our hearts, in our city, for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, everybody agreed and said, amen. Well, perhaps one of our least favorite designations, but really the truth about what it means to be a Christian, is that the Christian waits and suffers. To be a Christian is to wait and to suffer, but to never wait and suffer in vain. Remember, we explored this in previous passages in Romans and also through the Advent season. Our identity as Christians makes the claim that Jesus has come in the flesh, in real space, in real time, and, and also that he's going to come back again. In fact, I, th I think one of the things that we fail to believe and, and to allow to animate our existence consistently is that Jesus promised that he's going to come back. That we as Christians are to be ever mindful, not just that we have a story that says Jesus came, but we have a story that is yet undone and yet not yet fully accomplished that Jesus will come back and fulfill all things that he has promised. See, he came in the past and he will come in the future. This means that, that Jesus is our hope as we wait and as we suffer. In fact, I think what comes out in this text through the Greek language, which fails to probably be as explicit in the English, is that very idea that Jesus waits with us as we wait for Jesus. Look again at Romans 8, verse 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? 
But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In the language of the, most of the New Testament and in which Paul wrote, hope has this dual meaning. It has two meanings. Hope is both an object and a subject in verse 24. What's that mean? Well, it means that hope is about what we are waiting for, but also hope is the way or how we are waiting. Did you hear that? It's what we are waiting for, but it is how we are waiting. As we've discussed before, the Christian life is this blessed paradox. It's this tension between two realities, that we wait for God, we wait for the Lord, but the Lord waits with us. That, that, that hope is our object and hope is our subject. That it is what we look forward to in the future and the person and work of Jesus Christ. And yet it's the way that we live our lives. It's the way that we wait with hope. We live in the in-between. And we live in days of suffering, longing for this glorious kingdom that is already but not yet. In sorrow, yet with joy. In our sufferings, we are eager for glory. But we don't wait alone. And we don't wait without instruction. See, in the in-between, the Christian is called, did you notice the text, to wait with patience. In other words, we are called to endure. What does it mean to endure? What does it mean to wait with patience? Perhaps the most memorable call to gospel endurance is found in Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to lean heavily upon this text today. So if you would turn there, meet me in Hebrews chapter 12. If you are in an old school Bible, turn to the right past 1st and 2nd Timothy, on past Titus, Philemon, then you'll hit Hebrews. If you get to James and Peter, go back to the left. Hebrews chapter 12. In the previous verse, as we come into this context, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 has just recounted and even cataloged a number of men and women in Israel's past who were faithful and fruitful. He, he famously calls them a cloud of witnesses. And so this is of whom he is speaking when he writes Hebrews chapter 12, verses one through three. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse two, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse three, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now, a number of things I think are clear from this particular passage, but for our purposes, we'll focus on what I believe the writer gives us, which is a clear meaning and understanding of Christian endurance. According to the writer of Hebrews, Christian endurance is actually three things here. The first is that endurance is about laying aside every weight. Did you notice that? Laying aside every weight. Why? Because weight makes you weary. Is anyone weary? Is anyone tired or exhausted or overwhelmed? Is this just me? Perhaps, perhaps you even are a little bit annoyed that we're talking about endurance at all because you're a little chippy two years into this pandemic, right? I don't want to endure. I want this to be done. Well, endurance is about pressing on even when you feel like you're feeling. Even when I feel like what I'm feeling, when we are weak. However, let, let's keep in mind, this does not mean endurance, Christian endurance, does not mean that you don't rest or admit you have limits. 
This is very different, and it's a vital distinction. We are not those who mindlessly press forward, right, and say, fake it till you make it, right? These sorts of, like, ideas that the world offers as substantive and righteous. The call to endure is not a call to never stop. In fact, enduring is precisely about resting in Christ and confessing your weakness honestly and regularly. So part of Christian endurance is constantly saying how hard it is to endure and to admitting that. Enduring is about letting go of the things, in fact, that you're not supposed to be doing. In other words, enduring is about stopping a ton of stuff that you were never even supposed to start. See, using this illustration of a a runner in a race, Hebrews 12 makes it clear that any and all unnecessary weight should and must be removed so that the athlete, or in this illustration, the follower of Jesus, can optimally perform. And like Hebrews, Paul often talked about the Christian life like a race. In life, many things weigh us down. People's expectations, your personal experiences, the burdens of shame and guilt and self-doubt. See, running a race is hard enough. In order to run fast and far, an athlete leaves behind all unnecessary burdens. And church, my sisters and brothers, let me speak with experience and because I love you. Most of what is causing you your fatigue and your weariness, and therefore your neglect and my neglect of the call to to endure is unnecessary weight. The burdens of shame and of expectation and fear and hustle, they're crushing you. See, most of what weighs us down, Jesus never told us to carry. After all, he's the one who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is what? light. We are weighed down, and the writer of Hebrews is teaching us, telling us, reminding us, encouraging us. This is such a hopeful word. We are weighed down, and in order to endure, we must lay aside unnecessary weight. See, endurance is about laying aside every weight. But it's not only that, particularly, the second thing that he says about endurance is that endurance is also about laying aside sin that he says clings so closely. One of the particular burdens which weighs us down and then cripples our endurance is sin. See, each and every sin trips us up and leads to destruction. Church, sin never helps you. Sin never helps you. It never moves you forward in a righteous manner. Sin, the writer says, clings closely, or perhaps your translation says, easily entangles. Sin, therefore, we should understand, is the heaviest weight that hinders us. To sin, if you remember, is to miss the mark morally. And what what does sin do to our endurance? Well, sin is often, to carry the illustration, an attempt, I believe, to cut corners in the race. In other words, it begins to make us think, sin does, that we are to lay down things like righteousness and holiness and to pick up the things that please us. Sin tells us that we can and should do as we please. In other words, sin tells us we don't have to wait. We don't have to suffer. We don't have to endure. Sin tells us that the burdens are holiness and obedience, that these things can be laid down. You don't have to do what God says. That's hard. Do what you want. Sin tells us to cut corners. 
It tells us that these sorts of things that God has commanded us, that God has made clear to us that those are the things that weigh us down. You see, sin gaslights us, telling us that we can stop struggling right now. We can stop suffering right now. In particular, I think, and and I think this for my generation is really crucial and critical to understand. In particular, when suffering comes, we distract ourselves with instant gratification. And what are we talking about when we talk about instant gratification? We talk, we're talking about choosing what tastes good, feels good, or makes us look good rather than what is actually good. That's instant gratification, to give the appearance that everything is okay when it, in actuality things are really not okay. Oftentimes that's sin. Church, we don't need a quick fix. We need to trust the Lord. When suffering comes... We can easily grow bitter, can't we, about those who we don't think are suffering like us. They might be suffering differently or not suffering at all from our vantage point. When suffering comes, we give ourselves permission to sin. When suffering comes, we get, we get angry with God and maybe even resort to making deals with Him. Like, God, if you make this easier or get me out of this, then I'll, like we start making deals with Him. See, we sin. And in order to endure, what what the writer of Hebrews tells us is we need to lay it aside. We need to lay aside sin. Thirdly, what does he say? Endurance is about running the race set before us. When unnecessary burdens and sin are laid aside, then and only then can we actually run the race appropriately or the right way. Notice there's a right way to run the race. There is a race, hear this language, set before us. We do not determine the course of the race. We we don't determine the way that it's supposed to go. We simply are called to run it. We do not decide what makes a good runner. We are simply called to what? Run. This idea from Hebrews is directly connected to our reading of, of Romans chapter 8, verse 24 and 25. The idea of waiting with patience, as one theologian put it, is a burning expectation in conformity with the divine plans. It's a burning expectation with the divine plans to do as God pleases. What are we waiting for? Or or what we are waiting for, rather, and the way in which we are waiting are both dictated by the desires and plans of the Lord. We do not choose our hope. We do not choose what feels hopeful to us. Rather, we endure when we run the race that is set before us. We endure when we stay faithful to the one who has remained faithful to us, the one for whom we wait and the one who graciously waits with us. See, the Lord has set hope before us. He is our hope. He waits with us. And in order to endure, we must live and hope and wait and suffer according to his will, not on our schedule. That's the call to endurance. That's the call to endure. And honestly, if we're just real about that, just hearing all of that is overwhelming. It seems impossible, doesn't it? That if the command today is to lay aside all of the burdens that weigh you down, lay aside sin, and run the race that God has given you, that's really, really hard to do. It's impossible. If you've battled sin and felt burdens of life, in fact, this command from Hebrews chapter 12 and by way through Romans chapter 8 can even sound cruel, doesn't it? I'd like to suggest to you that religion is a very cruel When we think about just doing good and doing the right things on our own accord, it is very cruel. But hear this. That's not the end of the story. 
The Lord never calls you to something for which he does not also perfectly equip you to accomplish. The Lord never calls you to something that he does not also perfectly equip you to accomplish. He calls, hear this, and he gives strength. He calls and he empowers. He calls and he fills with his Holy Spirit. Where do we get the strength to endure? So we've looked at the call to endure. Now let's look at the strength to endure. Here's again where our imagination comes into focus. See, the strength to endure is cultivated by the imagination. Remember, as we've considered last week, as Christians, our our imagination is not about believing things that are not true, but rather it is seeing realities with our hearts that we cannot with our eyes. The Christian imagination is not about making up stuff that make us feel good. That is a modern idea of imagination. The Christian imagination is about believing, seeing, trusting, embracing realities with our hearts that we cannot see or perceive with our eyes. Are you with me? Look back at Romans chapter 8. So if you're still in Hebrews, flip back to the left. Look look at it again with with this lens of imagination. Hope is about seeing something that we can't see. Romans 8, verse 24, 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes what he sees? Hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So in Romans, you are instructed, I am instructed to imagine this glorious future that we have in Christ. And that vision is actually meant to empower you and give you strength. And in Hebrews chapter 12, you're called to imagine, as he puts it, a great cloud of witnesses or saints who have endured long before you or even, as my mother used to say, a twinkle in your mother's eye, right? Not only that, but you're supposed to imagine or look to Jesus himself who endured the cross for the sake of joy. Jesus waited with patience, a burning expectation in conformity with God's plans. And then he rose in glory. Do you see, what I'm trying to help us understand is that a redeemed Christian imagination is what gives you strength. So let me say it to you this way, my sisters and my brothers. One of the primary reasons you do not endure or lack the strength to endure is because your imagination has been shaped and weighed down and even neglected by sin and the burdens of this life rather than being shaped by the Word of God. When we consider the future, when we look with hope into the future, is our vision more cultivated and curated and shaped and informed by the things of this present and momentary affliction or by the God who rose his son from the dead after three days and by the realities coming forth from his word? See, our our imaginations must be appropriately nurtured if we are to have the strength to endure in this life. And they can be. That's the beauty of both Hebrews and Romans, and I think what the fullness of God's Word teaches. Your imagination can be appropriately cultivated to see the realities that God has put forth in this world that you cannot perceive with the naked eye. In fact, that's what Paul prayed for for the Ephesian church. Ephesians 1 verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, he said, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. See, without a redeemed imagination, without, as Paul puts it, the eyes of your hearts enlightened, 
we will not rightly conceive our hope, and therefore we will not endure. We will grow weary. We will give up. We will lose heart. See, the call to endurance requires strength. And the strength to endure comes from a redeemed imagination. Pastor Rankin Wilborn opens up his book, Union with Christ, with an explanation about Christian imagination as it relates to the theme of his book, Union with Christ. And in his introduction, he quotes biblical scholar Walter Bergman. And Bergman believes our collective imagination is in peril in our cultural moment. In fact, this is why many of us might even be comfortable, uncomfortable rather, with this language. Bergman says the key pathology of our time, which seduces us all, is the reduction of the imagination so that we are too numbed, satiated, and co-opted to do serious imagination work. What's he saying? What he's saying is that there is a constant pull away from the imagination and the cultivation of it. Have you ever noticed how little help a child needs to imagine something? How little encouragement they need to come up with something that no one has ever thought of before, whether they're drawing it or talking about it or telling a story. They need very little help to get their imagination going. In fact, one teacher looked at a crowd of elementary school students and said, how many of you can sing? The whole crowd raises their hands. He asked the same question to a group of adults. How many of you can sing? One of them raises their hands. There is something of imagination. There is something of joy. There is something of possibility and faith that adulthood drives away. See, by adulthood, our imaginations have almost nearly atrophied, and we believe it's a sign of maturity. This has a serious impact on our faith and our endurance. We are taught not to imagine the beauty and truth of God's word as they come to bear in this life. Rather, we are trained and tricked and discipled to act and to think and to believe that this world is all that there is. Perhaps this is one of the reasons why Jesus said this, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, unless you become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So the strength to endure comes from a redeemed imagination. But what appropriately nurtures our imagination? If we can't see with hope, what ought we be looking at? Well, the writer of Hebrews is, again, really instructive. He directs his readers to the people of God and to the Son of God. He says, look to the people of faith, or look to people of faith, and look to the founder and perfecter of your faith. Are you with me? In other words, here's what I think that the writer of Hebrews is saying. In our weariness, you and I are to find strength remembering Abraham, who, verse 17 and 19 in Hebrews 11 says, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, that he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. We're supposed to look at Abraham. In In our lack of faith, you and I are to find strength by remembering Sarah, who, Hebrews tells us, received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him, that is God, faithful, who had promised. In our pain, you and I are to find strength by remembering La Virgin de Guadalupe, who did what no violent male Spanish conquistador could do. She convinced the Aztecs of the love of God. In our suffering, 
you and I are to find strength from Mamie Till Mobley, the mother of the violently slain black boy Emmett Till, who was killed for allegedly whistling at a white woman. She said, God told me, I have taken one from you, but I will give you thousands. In our hopelessness and battle against sin, and when we feel the weight of the world overwhelming us, you're supposed to look to your grandparents who prayed for you from the moment of your conception. You're supposed to look to that friend who discipled you all the way through college. You're to look to your group leader who's walked through a similar pain like that before. You're supposed to look to your mom and your dad who have taught you from a young age to know and love and follow Jesus. We're supposed to look to each other, your sisters and your brothers in this local church, and we're supposed to find strength to endure from one another. You see, what the weight of this world tells you is that you are all there is. We stop looking at the cloud of witnesses. We stop finding strength from those who have come before us and those who are with us now. We're supposed to look to each other. Abraham, Sarah, La Virgin de Guadalupe, Mamie Till, Mobley, your grandmother, your brothers and sisters at church in the square, these are not meant to be venerated and worshipped. They are meant to enlighten the eyes of your heart. They're supposed to help you see when you can't. They're supposed to shed light to your heart when it all feels dark to you. They are divine instruments which God graciously uses to nurture your imagination but even this cloud of witnesses is not enough. Because what are they? Witnesses. And actually, in the original language, it comes from the same root word as martyrs. For who? For who are they witnesses? To what have they witnessed? Jesus Christ, who endured the cross and despised the shame. The writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 3. Consider him. Look to him. That's Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Oh, God, help us. Do you see? In our weakness, we are ultimately to find strength by beholding Jesus. 17th century English theologian John Owen put it this way, by beholding the glory of Christ, by faith, we shall find rest to our souls. Our minds are apt, he goes on, to be filled with troubles, fears, cares, dangers, distressed, ungoverned passion, and lusts. By these, our thoughts are filled with chaos, darkness, and confusion. But where the soul is fixed on the glory of Christ, then the mind finds rest and peace. Church, I'm here to tell you today there is something powerful about seeing Jesus when we suffer. There is something comforting about beholding Christ in the midst of our pain and uncertainty. There is something transformative about looking to the author and perfecter of our faith when our faith is weak as we wait. You see, in our weariness, we behold Jesus, and he's revealed to be the lifter of our heads, Psalm 3. In our lack of faith, we behold Jesus, the giver of faith, Ephesians 2. In our pain, we behold Jesus, the healer of the brokenhearted, Psalm 147. In our suffering, we behold Jesus, the one who suffered for us and with us, Isaiah 53. In our hopelessness, we behold Jesus, the giver of hope, Jeremiah 29. In our battle with sin, we behold Jesus. Why? He's the one who forgives 
forgives and reconciles and is the one true mediator between God and humanity. 1 Timothy chapter 2, in our weakness, we behold Jesus. Why? Because he said, my grace is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Can you even imagine? What if we became men and women, a church who responded to the call to endure and found strength to endure through the people of faith and the perfecter of our faith? What if our collective imaginations were rightly cultivated and nurtured and tuned to the promises and power of God, to the person and work of Jesus Christ? What if in the midst of our suffering, we look to Christ, we look to each other while we were waiting, we behold him, beheld him, look to him? Well, I believe then we'd capture this divine paradox that in our suffering, waiting for glory, we would know that we wait for the Lord, and yet we know that the Lord waits with us we would see with our hearts what we can't with our eyes. Then I believe we'd wait, we'd suffer, and we'd live with hope. We'd live with a redeemed imagination that sees what we can't see. We'd see glory with the eyes of our hearts. The call to endure is about laying aside sin and unnecessary burdens and running the race that God has set before you. The strength to endure comes from a redeemed imagination which looks to the people of God and the perfecter of our faith to embolden us and empower us. Now the promise of endurance, what some might call the perseverance of the saints. I'd like to ponder this promise from a somewhat obscure moment between Jesus and the Apostle Peter. And if ever you are down on yourself and feel as though you are unworthy to be loved by Jesus, look at Peter. And that's like no shade, like when we see him in kingdom come, Peter, but he gives us great hope, Peter does. Please meet me in Luke chapter 22, if you're still in Romans, back to the left, through Acts, through John. You'll hit Luke, Luke chapter 22, verse 31 through 34. I confess to you, this is a passage I had not contemplated very much until preparing for today, but I think there's a wealth of hope and encouragement here for us as we consider this promise of endurance. See, in Luke's record, Jesus is clearly on his way to the cross, and he will soon be betrayed. And, and, and before he is, though, we get this moment captured between Jesus and one of his closest followers named Simon Peter, Luke chapter 22 Verse 31, Simon, Simon, Jesus says, Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me, deny it three times that you know me. For those of you who know the story, Peter would indeed act like he doesn't know Jesus three times when asked about it. Let me, let me put it to you this way in the language of our lesson today. It does not seem like Peter responds well to the call to endure. 
when things got hot, when things got hard, when things got difficult for Peter, it seems like he buckles and he does not endure. He doesn't respond to the call to endure. He, he seems like he lacks the strength to endure. And yet, what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say to him before he denies Jesus? He says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Here's the good news. Peter's failure to stay faithful is not the ultimate determination of his endurance. Jesus is. Peter's failure to embrace the call to endure and to find the strength to endure is not the ultimate determination of his endurance. Jesus is. Peter goes on, after he denies the Son of the living God three times, he goes on to write part of the New Testament and then therefore becomes part of this great cloud of witnesses that you and I are meant to look to to find encouragement. The words of Jesus are actually fulfilled. He says, once you have turned, strengthen your brothers. And for 2,000 years, Peter, the one who failed Jesus three times, has been strengthening the church. Are you with me? Are you weary? Do you lack faith? Are you in pain, suffering, hopeless, losing the battle to sin? My sister, my brother, please, by God's grace, take heart. Your failure to heed the call to endure and your lack of strength to endure is not the ultimate determination of your endurance to glory. Jesus is. That's the promise. The promise is that those whom Jesus has called to endure, those are the ones that he gives the strength to endure, and those are the ones he has promised will indeed endure. So, church in the square, may that shape your imagination today of how you see yourself in this in-between suffering and glory. May that give you hope to wait with patience. Heavenly Father, Help us, empower us, embolden us, strengthen us to be a people who endure. And when we don't, would you hold us fast? Would Jesus be the one who holds all things together by the word of his power when ultimately we fail the calling and fail the strength? We know that Jesus did not fail. Jesus does not fail and Jesus will not fail. Because he is the one for joy set before him, endured the cross, and despised its shame. Now we can consider him our Lord and Savior, our mediator, our hope giver, our faith giver. We consider him who endured such hostility from sin, sinful men so that we won't grow weary and faint hearted. We need your spirit, we need each other. We need the stories of the saints before us. We need a vision of your son. Would you cultivate a righteous and redeemed gospel imagination that empowers us for the journey ahead? For your glory, our good we ask in Jesus' name. Everybody agreed and said, amen.